The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Tom Sisti. Tom is the Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. Uh, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, so why don't we start? I know there's, uh, you know, we're approach, rapidly approaching the issuance of GSA's next uh, report on e-commerce. Um, as listeners will recall, Section 846 uh, of the 2000. NDAA, you created a framework for GSA and OMB to assess and implement potential commercial e-commerce platforms uh, for use by federal buyers, I guess, in the purchase of commercial products. Um, And, you know, the first step a year ago in March, March 2018, GSA issued the implementation plan where they defined three different types of uh, e-commerce platforms at e-marketplace. That's sort of the Amazon model. I think maybe Walmart might be a model like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then e-commerce platform where that's a company selling its products through its e-commerce platform. Mm-hmm. Um, think of any company out there that does that sort of thing. Um, and then in an e-procurement, which is really about software as a, as, as a service, do setting buying rules and doing, you know, and assisting in the you know, surveying of the market and identifying eligible products and pricing for purchases. So those are the three models that GSA uh, identified. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, that approach to the statute? Well, the statute didn't dictate that. Uh, they had to do that. They were just told to pilot what's available in the commercial marketplace. And um, I guess from their standpoint, this was a way to get their mind around what's out there. There was concern uh, expressed at the time that this could be problematic because if it weren't done correctly, if you weren't piloting what is out there in the marketplace at the same time, you risked distorting the market, creating um, winners and losers up front in the simple piloting process. Um, And I think that we're starting to see that play out. Yeah, I think what, Tom, you're referring to, right, is uh, in December of 2018, uh, GSA um, had another industry day. They issued an RFI, and they they made it clear that they were going to, at that time, uh, do a proof of concept, but they were going to, of the three marketplaces that they identified as eligible under the statute to be utilized by the government, they were going they identified the e marketplace model as the one they were going to do the proof of concept and they were going to set aside at least for now the e commerce platform and the e procurement platform type providers from participation in the e uh, e commerce proof of concept i think that's right and what was challenging for industry was that we really didn't have a sense of okay are you doing one and then you're going to do another in series you know, to the third after that, are you, you, you're clearly not going to do them together. 
So uh, what's the follow-on after you pilot one? And the impression is that once the one model is piloted, then the agency will move forward and make an award uh, or uh, offer for award a contract based on that pilot. I don't think that's consistent with the way the statute evolved. Remember when the statute uh, was uh, first introduced, we had talk of it being just for one model. And I think uh, over time, Congress reflected on it and said, look, we're, we're kind of shortchanging ourselves. There is a marketplace out there. Let's test the marketplace. Let's test the solutions there. It also was cognizant of the fact that there are some uh, secondary issues associated with this, certainly the ownership of the data, protection of that data. In fact, we saw subsequent uh, legislation in for the 2019 NDAA where language was added to make sure that that data was safeguarded um, and was not used for marketing or other purposes by the solution provider. So uh, this this kind of is a step backwards, potentially, um, and it's not clear why. Right. Well, yeah, so that proof of concept, I think you described it pretty well. So the proof of concept's sitting there and it looks it's going to be the marketplace that leaves out e-commerce providers and e-procurement providers. And it does raise questions about sort of pre-selecting a particular approach for, you know, for implementation. Um, and, you know, first to the market is going to be the winner in a certain sense, in, in the especially in something like this. So there's that issue. And I think another thing that I think people have expressed concern about in looking at it is that, not only are you just doing a proof of concept, it could lead to an implementation of one of the one particular model inconsistent with the statute, but also it then that proof of concept will inform any policy or rules around that are written t- to further that implementation and put the contract in place. So you're almost institutionalizing a, a potential model. a particular model without have actually had there's the the risk of that without having actually taken a look at and evaluated at the same time through the same proof of concept to to be able to assess the relative merits of each of them well in essence you're getting to sort of to the philosophical argument here if you're piloting solutions in the marketplace it's almost a false pilot to pilot one it it it, it carries with it the implication that I'm piloting one type. One type. Okay. I'm piloting this because I need to know what to do to implement this. It's not piloting this as a spectrum of solutions across the marketplace, which I think when you look at the evolution of the statutory language, remember this was 801 at one point and then right. it became 846. When you look at the evolution of the language in the legislative history, you can see that there was a shift in thinking to broaden the competitive force that would act upon the e-commerce solutions. Didn't they actually specifically expand the definition, the statutory definition of platform to be more inclusive? And didn't they also, you know, mandate language of awarding more than one contract? We talked about portals and we, we saw language change. And we talked about, if you talk about, if you look to the legislative history, the report language, you see the intent to look at solutions available, plural, not singular. So it, it is troubling 
to see this pop up, but there are secondary issues associated even with the solutions. And it's the uh, way in which those solutions are being implemented and piloted. The uh, utilization, for instance, at the micro-purchase threshold level, which carries with it some uh, some issues associated not only with e-commerce, but with supply chain risk. And as you well know, the coalition and others have uh, studied e-commerce and there are some findings that could have implications for the exact model that GSA has selected, the marketplace model, because these studies involved that model. One was the Naval Postgraduate School study, and the other is the coalition's own study of Ability One products. Right. So the the Naval Postgraduate study, these two studies, what did they indicate? I know the coalition is one we worked on, but from your perspective, what did you learn from those studies? Well, to bring it up a level rather than getting into the weeds, one, the price advantage, if you will, associated with commercial e-commerce platforms didn't necessarily materialize. In fact, it was found that for products compared across uh, a commercial platform and GSA Advantage, GSA Advantage prices were lower. Uh, On the Naval Postgraduate School study, the delivery times were faster. They were uh, all involving at least one small business participant, the cost of delivery were less. Now, the important thing, both for that study and for the Ability One study, is to recognize that GSA Advantage is compliant by fiat with laws like the Trade Agreements Act and the Buy American Act. And that has implications for the types of products that are purchased on those platforms, that are available for purchase on those platforms. Right. Well, that gets to the, the, the question. So, so what, what you're telling me in a certain sense, right, is that you have a model that implements certain government unique requirements, but at the same time still has pricing that is lower than a fully open with no government unique requirements platform. That's one of the sort of Potentially lessons learned there from those two studies? Potentially. I mean, to be fair, you can't extrapolate and say this definitively states that these platforms are not suitable. What you can say is this raises a question. And when you then shift over and look at the Ability One pilot study that the coalition did, where again, substantially all of the products compared, I think it was 744 products. Like products, you know, pen is a pen, right? The prices in over 99% of the cases were lower on GSA Advantage. When you corrected for things like multiple um, excuse minimum, me, order, minimum or? order discounts, you you still had 78, 76, something 73, like 74. percent of the prices lower. You had uh, delivery times uh, better. And again, you had this dynamic where – GSA is providing compliant products, if you will, versus right. But in the case of ability, right? But in the case of ability one product, the ability one they were both ability one products, mm-hmm. so they both were compliant. Right. So it actually made the study even more interesting because you were taking identical items, and I guess in the in the in the naval postgraduate they had identical items too, but. You know, but presumably the ones on GSA Advantage were for sure trade agreements that compliant. The ones on the other platform 
may or may not have been, you know, trade agreements that compliant. Um, but to be fair, yes, the there the one difference I think that was consistent across both studies is that the usability, I guess that's the right word, of, of user friendliness, yes, whatever yeah. of the platform was much much better on the commercial than it was on um, GSA Advantage, and that's also something worthy of study. Why is that? What can be done to improve that? Right. Well, that's yeah, that's a great point because that's in a certain sense that's a growth inhibitor for GSA. It's got a good program. Um, you know, it could always be better, but in terms of its presentation to its customer and to its contractors, like through that through through its electronic tools like GSA Advantage, you know, there's significant opportunities for improvement that could you know further open up that market. It could. And and the thing is that you can have a great tool, but if it's very difficult to use, then the utility of it. Right. So is, has anybody ever thought about like finding a commercial platform to put – I mean I know you know the GSA Advantage is now more than two decades old. Um, you know, it implements a lot of policy through a system which makes it a bit more clunky, things that are that commercial platforms don't have to. But still, the you know a, a refresh of it, a significant. I know GSA. That's one of GSA's priorities. Right. Uh, you know, and Alan Thomas in particular. You know, looking at systems uh, where they're going to work at, and and it, and I want to return um, to one other the, to the issue about the three um, different platforms and the the apparent the initial choice. I would I think it's fair to say. Uh, with regard to um, you know piloting only one of those now, I you know Laura Stanton recently did a blog or a post on GSA Interact and talked about hearing back from people in response to the RFI. And one of the things she acknowledged is that the idea of testing the multiple different types of platforms. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it, it, it's uh, a cause for optimism. I think she's right to be concerned about that. And you know they're they're trying they're in a tough spot. They're working against a statutory clock that's ticking. So they have to do a lot of things in a very short period of time. And it, it's it's almost a thankless task. But I think, you know, that that's a good sign that they're, they're listening to the comments coming in and they're recognizing that. I mean, this is sort of an irony, too, if you think about it, because on the one hand, you're, the pilot that is being proposed is associated with a model – that you now have two studies showing is not necessarily the most cost effective for the government. So, you know, maybe we should step back. Maybe uh, we should cool things down a bit and say what what's going on here with these uh, with e-commerce on the commercial side and on the government side. Yeah, well, Tom, on on that note, we when we come back, we'll continue our e-commerce discussion. Talk about some of the issues. We we've just scratched the surface a little bit on some of the issues surrounding e-commerce. And what it may or may not mean for the federal market. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He is Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. I am Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I am Roger Waldron. I'm here with Tom Sisti. He is Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP, and we're talking e-commerce and Tom, I think we uh, beat the uh, proof of concept in the three different channels at GSA. 
you know, independently decided to create as a definition across when they create a definition, right? That well, you're always going to be restricting in some, but to re- create these sub definitions within a expansive definition, there it sort of it complicates their effort. I guess. I, it, it complicates it, but at the same time, it's understandable. Right, it simplifies it and complicates it at the same time. Right, it's easy to say go test everything, but yeah. it's what's everything? Yeah, right? you got to create a framework. So it does. It complicates it and it simplifies it both. It's, uh, but that's e-commerce, right? So, uh, you know, another uh, thing that GSA um, and the current proof of concept looks at is the idea of um, uh, utilizing and lim- or limiting purchases to. And they're independent, separate transactions. Those purchases with uh, at the micro purchase threshold. Mm-hmm. So, just to describe it for the listeners, use an e marketplace. I'm a government buyer. Have my credit card. I go up on the marketplace provider. There'll be a bunch of supplier products there. There may be a marketplace provider product there. They do whatever the ordering procedures that are going to be required that GSA has, which are going to be very like look at three or whatever. Um, and then they pick one and place the order, use a credit card, kind of, right? That's sort of, but it's only limited to purchases below the micro purchase threshold, which is now $10,000, which is still, that's a lot of money. So your thoughts on the use, the approach to use and make independent transactions uh, below the micro purchase threshold for each of these things on the platform? Well, first, I, I think you have to. You're making an assumption. It may be you pick of three or it may be if you find what you want, buy it. It's not necessarily clear. I think we have to go back and look at the micro-purchase threshold itself. You know, when it it evolved, it evolved for, uh, you know, purchases at at the base level to provide flexibility to purchasing entities so they didn't have to go through all of the processes. But more importantly, I think you have to look at the risks that were being balanced at the time – the dollar threshold level was deemed a point at which the risk of maybe waste was very, very low. You had the purchase cards being implemented, and they provided an audit trail of purchases so that you could have some accountability for what was going on. The risks 25 years ago are not necessarily the same risks or a complete set of the risks that exist today. So, for instance, we have a globalized supply chain. And we are very concerned, as we've seen in multiple bills and pieces of legislation that have actually been enacted, uh, concerns about products from certain uh, countries uh, and um, their introduction into the government's supply chain. So it's not enough to say, hey, we're accounting for risk by holding the pilot to the micro-purchase threshold. You have to ask questions. What types of products are going to be purchased? Because some products may carry more risk than others. If I'm buying curtains, unless they're you know radioactive or something. Smart curtains. Uh, smart curtains, right. I'm not necessarily as concerned as I might be if I, buy, if I let somebody buy a thumb drive. All right, anything that could connect to a network, any IT. So you know, you've got that question. We have a channel that that could exist that really needs to have some governance on it, governance as to the pedigree of the product, um, whether or not it is counterfeit, um, and then a level of accountability. 
are you in this process essentially shifting the cybersecurity concern that you might have with the supply chain to multiple buyers across the spectrum of government as opposed to providing those buyers a relatively sure set of goods that can be purchased um, where you don't have the same level of concern or risk. Well, that's uh, you could take that issue, the Trade Agreements Act. Like uh, you might have a buyer who, you know, the way it's sort of been left is like eight, buyers will have to determine what they want to apply in a certain sense or, you know, depending on their agency. So it kind of – do you have thoughts on – you know, what's this sort of apparent shifting of the responsibility or shifting of burdens a little bit from the individual buyer, you know, from, you know, contract platform providers like GSA or, you know, NASA well, Soup beg, or whatever? It does beg the question, okay, so we have a platform that exists that provides relatively compliant products and we're – fighting tooth and nail to put in place a platform where it's not clear how we're going to have that level of governance uh, for the products they're sold. It seems to me one of the issues that's going to have to be addressed is who will take on accountability for what is offered to the federal purchaser. Is the intent to shift this completely over to multiple purchasers at a time when we are concerned about what products are entering the supply chain. Well, then also that's sort of to get to your point, when you start considering the other models, like, you know, so the e-marketplace model, that's, I guess it's easier from a conceptual perspective to say, okay, it's a micro-purchase buy, nothing applies. Because you you contract with the e-marketplace provider for that service, and then in each individual con- uh, transaction arguably is, it not arguably it is between the supplier, the maker of that product, the supplier of that product, and the government. Now, in the e-commerce platform, that's a company who is offering their own stuff. Staples or companies like the Office Depot, companies who have their own websites and are selling their stuff under their name. That website and that that meets the definition, and GSA acknowledges that that's the e-commerce platform and it's eligible. So, are you just contracting with? the e-commerce platform provider for their e-commerce service and not for the product? How do you structure something that divides the two when they're part and parcel of the same solution from an e-commerce perspective? And the same thing with the e-procurement. The rules of the software as service can be set for certain compliance requirements parameters theoretically, and you're not going to, you're consciously not going to do that as well. So, I mean, how how do you make sense of all this? Well, it just it raises the question, what is the utility of this pilot if you're not testing these things? Another thing is, what's the value of the pilot at this dollar threshold? Because it's going to have to operate at a much higher dollar threshold per the statute. Right. Well, you just think about it. This next – this phase, the report that comes out in March – probably on March 13th if it's exactly a year from the previous report. Amongst the things they're supposed to address are, you know, those, um, you know, what products should or shouldn't be bought through it that you touched on, uh, impact on other programs, which we don't know because they haven't really said uh, uh, with regard to what they think that the case is. They claim to be targeting open market purchases, but 
how do you how do you assess that? So they're almost doing market research into the next phase, which is supposed to be the phase where they come up with the rules. Um, well, and also there are challenges uh, for vendors in the marketplace. Uh, your heart goes out to a prime vendor or contractor who is uh, charged with uh, implementing the installation of a network, let's say, and is uh, provided government-furnished equipment. That equipment might or might not come from this pilot. If it comes from this pilot and it turns out to have caused something catastrophic, well, first you have a performance issue that has to be worked out with that prime contractor. The contractor is going to be obligated to, to exhaust the money and resources to determine the forensics around that failure and to clear itself for any potential breach issues. Again, it raises the question, what types of products should be put in place here? Is IT, for instance, really suitable for something like this? Again, given the concerns about supply chain risk. Tom, we have to take our break. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He is Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. You're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Uh, This is Roger Waldron, and I'm here with Tom Sisti, who is Vice President and Chief uh, Legislative Counsel at SAP. And Tom, we've talked e-commerce a lot. We could do a whole show on the data aspects of it and mm-hmm. ensuring, you know, as the Congress provided that the data in the e-commerce platform is not used for any competitive purposes by any marketplace provider. That's pretty clear, and GSA has got to implement that some way. That, well, maybe when they do that, we can come back and talk about it. But let's shift a little bit and talk about um, a little bit Section 809. There's some sort of very similar sort of tangents going on there with regard to 809 and particularly the dynamic marketplace recommendations and sort of this rejiggering of commercial item contracting into these readily available and readily available with modifications and then government by unique by purchase requirements, kind of uh, functional requirements. So your thoughts on that? Well, um First, I think you have to understand the three buckets they've created. Readily available is any product or service that requires no customization. So right. pretty straightforward. Um, like you go into Home Depot, you buy some paintbrushes, right, right, whatever. Rapid right. delivery, mostly products, some services. Uh, typically, uh, you have multiple sources providing it. It's kind of sort of you almost think of a commodity uh, in the process. The next um, – readily available with customization, using common commercial activities to just tweak a product to make it work for you. Uh, Again, typically multiple sources are providing it. You get price quotes, limited procurement uh, law and policies would apply at this level. Okay. And then defense and unique, it would have, you know, development that could be financed by DOD. You have competition uh, but they they were saying if it's if it's uh, and this is where it gets a little fuzzy if if it's commercial limited potentially limited competitions uh, pricing based on development costs uh, products few services are involved and reduced compliance burdens I mean conceptually this might sound nice but I mean you're you're again 
starting to bump up against these policy issues that are associated with the e-commerce platform, readily available, uh, don't have to worry about uh, about some of the compliance mechanisms. Okay, again, this model would be great a couple of decades ago, but what about our cyber concerns now? How do you address these? I think there is an assumption that um, at these levels, with these types of products, you have no risk. Remember with uh, one of the uh, retailers a year or two ago, had a major, major cyber attack. And the attack wasn't through the traditional IT system. It was through the HVAC system. You know, commercial product, everybody's got an HVAC system, right? So it, it probably not even thought of before. The question becomes, you know, to what extent are we covering this new dynamic in this dynamic marketplace of cyber concern. Well, another sort of area that is a transparent, the readily available, as I understand it, you know, there's no real notice requirements up to $15 million um, with regard to a transaction. And then, you know, there's also some changes, proposed changes in the protest process. You know, one of the things that I think is a hallmark of the, of the, of the mark, commercial market or the federal market is competition. And we've done studies and shown the competition rates are actually overall um, pretty high. You know, you go into a model where, you know, you just, you know, the government can go contact three and then get them to give the quotes and you move on. It's not even in the context of a task order competition. It's just trying to create this marketplace. And I, one of the things I just don't understand if the real problem is, you know, access to cutting edge technology. Shouldn't we be focusing, you know, all our efforts there or a lot of the efforts there to try to address access to that technology for weapon systems? Here we're talking about buying commercial items. You know, that balance between transparency, process, and um, competition and streamlining, uh, you know, it's, it just seems to me, just my instincts tell me that it just goes too, a bit too far. What do you think? Well, we can talk about protests in a minute because they also make some recommendations around that. But it seems to me that it, it's nice to say we're over overwhelmed with protests or processes. But processes also provide an element of stability and credibility in, in the system. We have a vibrant procurement system and a lot of players in this system – in part because they understand it. They understand that there are rules of the game that people will follow and they will be held accountable to follow. The closer you get to an arbitrary system uh, where it's the feeling of, of an individual that is driving a purchase rather than you know, a set of objective criteria, the more you risk not having participation in the marketplace and ultimately risk having people not offer the innovation that you say you want. So like everything else in life, it's a balance. Right. And there's the motivations or the measures are different, right? In the private sector, at the end of the day, what's your profit? What's your margins? You know, what are you reporting to the shareholders? There's That's a different kind of accountability than when you're you're managing the public fisc. Right. And you and and there are different dynamics with regard to how you actually measure that and ensure 
the system works, I guess, for all in a certain sense. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's not, not, not to say there shouldn't be streamlining, but there can be very transparent streamlining that gives, you know, folks a chance. And I'm just wondering if this recommendation goes a bit afield in, in that area. Well, I think it needs to be talked through a little bit. You and I spoke to this group several times, and I, I think it's it's uh, everyone's in the same church where we might be in different pews, you know, trying to figure right, out where right. this lands. Yeah. Um, there's certainly you want to get rid of useless or outdated uh, processes that don't add value. But the question is, uh, have you assessed those? I, I can remember from the days of the 800 uh, report, you, it went you know page by page going through these rules, lighter than air aircraft. I remember right, right. John and I going through that as well. So I mean, you have to you have to sort of pick this apart. It's you can't do this by a broad statement, right? Um, so just a minute on bid protest, we can start and then go back. And then the next segment, we can continue that discussion. Just your first thought on bid protest and the recommendations in the 809 panel report. Well, I think, you know, for years we've had people complaining about the protest process. And I think in the wake of the RAND study, I mean, it it, it should be a closed issue. The RAND study said that this is not an acquisition crisis. Um, GAO, yes, has seen an uptick over the years, it didn't uh, from fiscal 17 to 18, but prior to that, saw some some elevation. But you have to remember, as a, you were on the Sarah panel, the Sarah panel opened up uh, task and delivery order protests. So naturally, you're going to have an increase there. When you compare the number of protest actions against the number of acquisition transactions in a given year, I mean, it is so small relative to that. And what does this provide? It provides a measure of transparency, um, an expedited review process. Uh, yeah, you have to use a, a lawyer. Well, you don't technically have to use a lawyer, but it is uh, more formal than it was, say, in the 80s. Um, and you know what? On the 80s, we're going to have to <laughs> have to take a, our break, Tom. Uh, my guest today is Tom Sisti. Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. I'm here today with Tom Sisti. He is Vice President and Chief Legislative Counsel at SAP. And Tom, when we took the break, we're talking the 80s, I guess, you know, uh, bad hair decade, right, or whatever, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at least I had hair back I then. I miss hair. <laughs> You're right. Um, so, um, but to continue the, the um, actually, the real discussion was about bid protest. And there's a couple things that I you know, wanted to get your thoughts on. And first of all, one of them, there's this recommendation that the 809 panel has that, you know, basically you got to choose one or the other. If you go to GAO, that's the end of the story. You can't appeal to the court because, you know, one of the I guess, criticisms or observations about the protest process. It was, you know, it's been somewhat, you can go to the GAO, and then you go to the court. GAO may go one way, the court goes another way. It just extends the procurement process. That's one issue. And then there's this uh, suggestion somehow in the report that um, there be a definition of the purpose of uh, the bid protest process. So first, let's just talk about you know, the choice of um, bid protest forums and that proposed change and what you think of that? Well, I think you're effectively saying go to the Court of Federal Claims because if if you um, 
you know, those are two different fora. Okay, GAO is an expeditious fora. It is, uh, and I don't mean to say it's any less. I mean, I, GAO has, has been a, a locus of expertise for decades, um, even before SICA, uh, when it was performing this function pursuant to the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921. It has is clearly recognized for procurement expertise, but it's, it is not a judicial forum. It is. Uh, it seeks to provide um, transparency into the process, to have an understanding of what took place, uh, and to provide relief where it can recommended relief. And interestingly, um, for several, it's a legislative branch. It's a legislative branch organization entity. Sure. entity yeah. But it's interesting to note that over the last several years, in the reports to Congress, that agencies are supposed to file when they. Do not file uh, follow a GAO recommendation. GAO's recommendations have been followed. So it's again you're, you're sitting here going, okay. So what's the problem we're chasing here? If agent if GAO acts, it makes a recommendation, and agencies follow the recommendations. What is it that we're we're well, fighting GA, here? Well, people the agencies follow those recommendations because if you don't, you have to report to Congress. Nobody, nobody, in very few instances, I think. VA might have done it back three or four years, like I said, back back before the time frame you're talking about. That may be the last one I recall. I think they may have. But nobody's going to go up there and tell Congress we didn't follow the recommendation of a of GAO. Well, I just because why so in other words let's Because they don't want to, you know so, right. the grief, right? Well, profiles so, encourage yeah, right. Yeah, right. Well, I mean I'm just I mean that's to <laughs> so, me that's a reality. Um, all right. But, but probably also all the work you have to go through to get to that point. Well, so in any case, I think when you when you sit there and say you have a choice of one or the other and not both, it, you're effectively eliminating GAO because the other one has has stays. You have a pellet. You know, you have right. a whole bunch of remedies that are available in a judicial form that aren't and necessarily. I, and, and I think it's a also it's you know it's not ivory tower, but I think you clearly get. I mean. The court is a court, right? And GAO is not a court. So if you're going to pick, you know, and you're talking about a major procurement and you only can pick one, I'm picking the court. Yeah, but you're also, again, foreclosing those vendors that are not geared towards bringing in legal talent to engage in that kind of battle, right. if you will. And and. There is a role that is being fulfilled by GAO, and it's being fulfilled generally right. pretty well. That's the point we're making, Tom. Right? Is that the unintended consequences? You're going to get people, more people going to the court. It's not going to be as as expedited. GAO has a 44 percent, you know, I guess, um, um, you know, favorable decision for the protester, sort of favorable outcome. What's that term? The um, uh, effectiveness rating. Effective, this, that's it. Last year's effectiveness rating was 44%. That's not – that means that some element of relief was achieved. Right. That's not a low number. Right. So what you're, you, you're, you're making people choose and if they're going to choose, they're not going to take that chance. They're going to go to the court. I just I – don't, I don't see why they wouldn't do that. Just Even though GA is, is a good forum and it has that effectiveness rate, it's to your point. There's other – the ability to stay. There's appeal to the federal circuit. You know, after that, I mean, there's other protections in there that not may not necessarily um, be in place. And then, if you're only limited to jail and you can't go anywhere else, then you know, 
you know, it's the same time they have effectiveness rate when it comes to major procurements. You know, there still is that deference to the contracting officer, no. I think, at GAO. But um, the other issue that we have to address before, because we're running short on time, is this uh, suggestion in the 809 panel report to somehow define the purpose of the bid protest process. I thought the pr- the the purpose is already pretty darn clear. Uh, yeah, it's thoughts. like, did you follow the law? Right. <laughs> you know, Due process. I mean, did you follow the terms of the solicitation? Did you follow uh, the law and policy and process put in place? That's that's what's really confusing um, to me. Uh, you know, people forget there is a benefit to the government to having this process. It's the whole concept of the private attorney general. You could you could assure uh, and that processes are followed by auditing contract awards, that'd be a very, very expensive process. When you have people with the most interest in the contract award, the people who competed, watching over it, that inures to the benefit of the country as well because now you have a check and sort of an an incentivized automated check in place and you're providing – your cost is providing the form. Now – you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we need to expedite acquisition and to the extent that we delay acquisition by this process, it could be a problem. OK, so then come back. Let's work on the debriefing process. Let's make them even more meaningful than we did in FASA. Let's try and and um, get a common understanding of what the rules of the road are. Let's take some of the processes out that we don't right. need. But that's the one thing we haven't talked about this show we could do a whole show on. And many a wise person, uh, you know, has said to me, particularly folks at DOD, at the end of the day, it boils down to the requirements. That's you right. have to articulate the requirements clearly. Um, that's where the rubber, that goes to, you know, understanding what you're competing for if you're in a company seeking it. And also goes to ultimate contract performance. That's the where, I mean, the processes and all this thing, that's, that's to me, fundamental. Um and just a last thought on the idea of defining the purpose. I mean, the purpose is – I mean, this again, the unintended consequences to undermine what is probably the most important purpose of the bid protest process if you want to – you know, is, you know there's in the ensuring due process and fair treatment. But ultimately, as you point you make, that all leads to better outcomes for the government over the long term. Credibility in the process leads to participation in the process. If you know you're treated fairly in the contract award process, you're going to participate in the marketplace. If you really want innovators to come to the marketplace, they need to know that they're they're not going to be given short shrift. Right. Tom, well said. We have to finish on that note. I want to thank my guest today, Tom Sisti. He is Vice President and Chief of Legislative Counsel at SAP. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, 
my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.